Blog Talk Radio. There's something outside. What is that? Radio. This is Gunnar Monson, your host. Uh, Shane is off actually out on a Bigfoot outing today, so uh, I'm going solo. With me today is our guest. We've had him on before, and by popular man, he's back again, Thomas Seward. Thomas is a member of the Kwakwakiwak tribe from northeastern Vancouver Island in British Columbia. Um, he is uh, an active Bigfoot researcher, and he is the host of Vancouver, excuse me, not Vancouver, Squat, Sasquatch Island um, Facebook group and and TV show that he's working on. So um, I would like to have a special announcement. Uh, if you haven't grabbed it already, uh, Bob Gimlin's new DVD that uh, talks about not just his uh, uh one-minute encounter with Bigfoot in 1967, but goes into a much more depth about Bob's life, which is was the, he's led a fascinating life. I mean, he's a true cowboy. Um, he, you know, until Broncos, you know, and until uh, his wife made him stop. So go to Bob's website, uh, www.bobgimlin.net, and pick up a copy of Bob's DVD, um, and it, it's it's great um, and and uh, Bob, if you've ever had the opportunity to meet him as a gentleman, and uh, this course is the, this year marks 50 years since the Patterson-Gimlin footage was first captured. So get over there today, uh, Bob's website, and you can pick up a copy of that DVD. Also, coming up in Labor Day weekend, I know Bob will be there at uh, the International Bigfoot Conference up in Kennewick, Washington. I'll be there. Um, members of the Olympic Project will be there updating uh uh, the public about the, the nesting site, what's going on with that. I know Cliff Berrickman speaking, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of great speakers, um, Dr. Jeff Meldrum, uh, Lyle Blackburn, uh, it, the list just goes on and on. So if you haven't already, you can look on their website, the International Bigfoot Conference, coming up this Labor Day weekend in Kennewa, Washington. So uh, hopefully I'll see you there. I'll of course, I will have Sasquatch coffee to sell. Uh, one more uh, announcement is uh, I have uh, met with Bob or talked with Bob, and we're putting together a special uh, Bluff Creek blend uh, for to to uh, in honor of the 50th anniversary of of the PG film, and uh, uh, I will I'll, I'll be posting the picture of them. But basically, it's it's got a picture of Bob and with his auto his autograph signature on the front of the bag. Um, what's cool is uh, for every bag that we sell, uh, we're going to, Bob is going to get 15 bucks. So we're splitting the, the proceeds with Bob. Um, there will be, uh, you know, of, of course, a limited quantity of these. Um, and as soon as I uh, get the, the artwork back um, in its final form, I will be posting it on our website. I'm sure it will show up on the Monstrex uh, Facebook page and website, and uh, get yourself some some. Uh, it'll be a collector's item. Fiftieth anniversary of uh, the PG film only will come around one time. So, um, without further ado, let's bring on our special guest, Mr. Thomas Seawood. Thomas, Hi, how, how are you? Doing, doing good. Doing good. How are you, buddy? Doing good. Doing a bunch of native art yeah. for Kennewick. 
What's that? Doing Sasquatch Native Art for the conference in Kennewick, Washington, gotcha. Labor Day. Hope to mention that Thomas will also be speaking at, at uh, the International Bigfoot Conference. Yeah. So, so Thomas, we've had, you on, we've had you on uh, a number of times before. Um, always a pleasure to, to chat with you. But you've had some interesting uh, stuff happen uh, ongoing since uh, last we chatted. Uh, what have you been up to in you know the last month, month and a half? Well, ten days ago, I was talking to a, a native fella in Idaho on one of the Indian reservations. He invited me out showed some pictures, probables from, from what I saw, but he had a pretty good story. So I jumped in Peggy's car and I took off east, <laughs> drove 14 hours and got to meet him first thing in the morning. And he was a, he was a flake. He was definitely well-medicated, that boy. And I spent maybe 15 minutes with him and you could tell he was just full of beans and BS. So I just jumped in the car and headed back this way again. But I did stop throughout the reservation speaking to different uh, Native people, and uh, every one of them had encounter stories in the last few years on the reserve in Idaho there, so that was pretty interesting. It sounds interesting, and not everything pans out. I mean, it's uh, I know that you were, that you were on your way to Idaho, and, and you know, you, you just never know what you're going to run into when you, you uh, someone says, hey, I got, you know, I had this happened or that happened, but but uh, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, what's going on um, in Nebraska because of all you know when we were talking about uh, uh, your your trips to Nebraska is like that's not one of the first places that that pops to mind when somebody says hey I'm going to go look for Bigfoot but there's some interesting things happening there. Yeah, it was. You know, I, that was one of the ones where, you know, I got the phone call and, you know, communication back and forth for almost five weeks. And uh, Peggy and I decided, you know, let's go check it out. So it was her idea to jump in a plane and off we went to Idaho. That was back in the end of May. And, you know, we were there, did the meet and greet sort of thing, had some chili with the boys from Res Squatching, Derek and Barry Webster. And then we uh, went out about 1230 at night. Tried to go out, and it was really raining. Got one of the vehicles stuck in in the cabin driveway, and got that unstuck. So it was after one when we finally got out to this area that uh, is a crossroads of uh, from the cabins it's called Big Elk up to the town of Macy, where most of the native people live there in Omaha Indian Reserve. And we just pulled over on the side of the road, and, you know, because we arrived there at dark, I didn't get a lay of the land or anything. I just, you know, took it that we're on a asphalt road with two ditches on either side, and it wasn't 20 minutes into stopping there that uh, they were doing their native thing, you know, said a few prayers, talking, you know, asking, telling Satanka what we're up to, you know, weren't meaning any harm or disrespect. And 20 minutes into it, all of a sudden, uh, we could hear something coming through the bush quietly and then a stick was tossed in our direction I won't say thrown because it was just to me it sounded like a, a blown down or a pushed down tree that was you know dead and dry you could actually hear the roots being pulled out and it was thrown towards us made a bunch of noise of course got our attention and Peggy she had on those uh, ear things that you can increase your hearing and she could actually hear the thing moving about and breathing and I could hear a little bit but you gotta remember I only have one year and uh the thing just moved off and you know kind of you know surprised me at the same turn right away as a researcher I thought okay you know let's run all the scenarios here so the next morning you know looking around the area and getting a feel for that Indian reserve, I realized that there's no way they had someone sitting out there waiting for us. And, you know, we stayed there, did some interviewing with people, some of the family members of Barry, and I was just blown away at this one house that his relative, and he was telling us about all of the encounters uh, passing by and the grandkids seeing them and house being hit at one time and all these reports through the years. And all of a sudden he, we looked over at his neighbor's house, and on each corner of a two-story house, 
he's on each corner on the ground he's got chained one big mean dog so there's four dogs barking away on chains and he had all these motion lights set up all around his house and he goes yeah that guy doesn't like them and uh, it, right there kind of tweaked my curiosity hearing the reports from so many people and I'd only hadn't even been there for 24 hours and then seeing that house and we stopped at another house and we we're talking to two young men that were sitting inside the kitchen there looking out the screen window and they had one apparently come on their porch a few nights beforehand and you know you can tell just the way they were talking they were scared and you know that really you know because i mentioned to him well the thing was on your porch why didn't you open the door and take a look at him or a picture and he was no way no no that thing scares me and i kind of got the sense and feeling that's what was going on in the reservation and you know friday night especially when we got there as soon as it got dark like we arrived at dark and then hour afterwards it was just like a ghost town you know you're looking at 700 tribe members live in that indian reserve and you know houses all over everyone's inside no one's walking on the street there's street lights there's you know the grocery store gas station lights all over the place there's no one out and i kind of thought that was really odd for a friday night because you know being an indian and being on indian reservations all my life you know, Friday night, it's, you know, it's sometimes it's Mardi Gras. It's, you know, everyone's out, especially in the summertime. And it was really intriguing. Peggy and I came back home to Kent, Washington. And uh, Barry had asked me to send a proposal to his chief and council to help them develop their eco-cultural tourism activities. They have 11 cabins. Only people go there are hunters during September and the fall period. And so I sent a proposal to him because that's what I do, consulting for tourism development as businesses, especially in the native level. And lo and behold, they invited me out and uh, gave me a contract for two weeks. And I flew back out there in June and spent two weeks doing my job during the daytime and at nighttime going out and doing some investigating. And I can honestly say that of all the places I've been, that has the highest concentration of Sasquatches I've ever come across. And it's, you know, something to see them. You know, we saw them at nighttime with the Fleur and uh, daytime interviewing people. You know, it was everyone had something to say about them. And, you know, not just one encounter either, you know, multiple encounters, you know, seeing, seeing them, smelling them, hearing them. And then I found out that a lot of the tribe members, they were actually feeding them. And, uh, you know, you imagine a small community with, forest all around them hardwood forest and corn fields and soya bean fields but it's really dense forest throughout the indian reserve and the people were telling me that you know they take their food scraps and when they go hunting or fishing they take the the remains and they throw it in the bushes just at the edge of their backyards and then a week into being in nebraska this uh man came up to me with braids and glasses and looking like the stoic plains indian and he asked to get a cigarette off me so i said sure and i gave him one i just looked at him and i said hey what kind of stories you got about sasquatches sitonga and he just looked at me he goes and i told him who i was what i was doing for the tribe and my experience as a researcher and you know being a bushman interacting with them not purposely but you know having them come towards where I was in that through the years and he opened up he started telling me a few things and then I invited him out to give me a hand you know at nighttime doing some research and listening to his encounters and stories and we struck a lifelong friendship I can honestly say and uh, he opened up to me and this guy has an amazing story and uh, he's definitely seen them he's lived in the bush most of his life from nine and a half years old is uh, the way that he was living with and uh, social services and the police of course took this young nine and a half year old boy and shuttled him 20 miles plus out of the Indian reserve to a non-Indian foster home and put him in there and because he'd lived with his father in sort of the fringes of the Indian reserve all his life and you know, his father just died. They hadn't even buried him yet. He was all, you know, mixed up and confused and scared. Didn't want to be in these strangers' house. So he just took some food and his blankets and he ran away that night. And 
took him a couple of days and he made it back to Macy, Nebraska. And he went to a relative's house and his relative told him that you can't stick around here. Police or social services find out that I'm not you around here. They're not only going to take you, they're going to take my children too. So here's some money. You leave now. Go hide in the bush. And that's what he did. Nighttime, he found an abandoned house at the edge of the reserve in the town of Macy. And he went inside, tried to sleep. And they have an 11 o'clock curfew there at night. It's been in it been active for quite a few years from what I understand. But he went, just tried to go to sleep. And then all of a sudden the dogs, I guess they packed up at nighttime there. And they were growling at him and everything, trying to come into the house. And he hid. And the next morning he, when he got up, he figured, you know, he can't sleep in those, that house anymore. So that day he just played in the bushes. But another relative's house, same thing. They gave him some food and a little bit of money, told him, get out of there because they didn't want social services taking their children too. And as North American Indians, whether we're from the U.S. or Canada, and Inuit or Métis, uh, North American Indians as a whole, you know, we're deathly afraid of social services. You know, um, we have a lot of bad blood, I guess you could say, with them. And even my ex-wife is a social services worker in Alberta, and she has our two children that are teenagers now, but... I knew when I split up, I had a snowflake's chance of survival in hell of ever getting my children back from a non-Indian social worker. So I understood right away. And, you know, seeing my Indian reserves, the social services and police tearing our children from different families away, I knew what he was going up against. And I knew what his family was going up against, why they couldn't harbor him. They couldn't look after him because, you know, that's basically a kangaroo court judge and jury will be made in on the porch of your house or inside and they will take your children too. And that's what this man, this young boy was up against at nine and a half. So he went further into the bush and at nighttime he came into town and he climbed up an oak tree and he slept in the, what he called the cradle. And that was first time in my life I'd really seen oak trees. And I was amazed at how they grow, you know, easy to climb and everything. And I can envision him up, you know, off the ground sleeping in the, crook of a bunch of branches there in that in a tree and in the morning when he woke up one of his relatives was beneath him going hey you get up now you go hide in the bush you get out of town the social services and police are looking for you and that's when he went into the forest but he started thinking about when his dad was alive and how when they had family members pass away they would bring food and bedding clothes that person's house and it would become abandoned in most cases out in the fringe or sort of the outback of the Indian Reserve and after a few years as all the weeds and trees started to grow up around the house when they open up more farm fields they would leave these little pockets of trees around these abandoned houses which were in the Omaha people's way sort of like I guess you know uh, um, honoring the past family member and this boy knew that he knew there was food in there and blankets and things. So he found one of these abandoned houses that uh, someone had passed away and uh, he knew where it was. And he went in there and he started opening up the cans, he said, and eating and using the blankets. And that's what he started doing that spring. You know, you got to remember this kid's nine and a half years old at the time. He's 38 now, but at nine and a half years old, that's something for a young kid to be doing. And that's when, you know, a few days with him, I looked at him and I said, there's no way you what you're telling me how every year you would do that from springtime. You would, nine and a half years old, you stayed all spring and summer into early fall living in the bushes around your Indian reserve and outside of it. And when the fall came and it started getting cold, you walked purposely into town at daytime so that they could pick you up, the police hand you over to social services, put you in a foster home, and you stayed there all late fall, winter, into early spring when it warmed up in March. And once again, you took food and clothes and blanket and ran away and went and lived in the bush of Macy, Nebraska. And I said, how long did you do this? And he goes, I did it every year until I was 18, until I no longer was held by social services. And even as a young adult, I would often go and just live in the bush, and I still do. I go walk around. And that's when, after a few hours, I looked at him and I said, 
you can't tell me that a nine and a half, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 year old kid can live out in your guys' bush by himself. I said, you know, you got cougars out there, you got uh, dog packs, you don't have bears, I said, but you have a lot of Sasquatches, Bigfoot. So those buggers, they looked after you, didn't they? And he just looked down and he just, after a few minutes, he looked up at me and he said, I have a lot to share with you, my friend. In time, in time, I will tell you it all. And that's when I knew right there that I'd found something very unique and still ongoing every couple of days, him and I communicate on uh, Facebook with uh, video chat or phone. And uh, he's telling me more and more as time's going and hopefully if all goes well and I can afford it in the next few months and want to go back to Macy and spend some time with him and record him. And our intention is to record everything he has to say. And from what he's told me so far, it's going to make a book that is just going to blow everyone away. The information he has, like in my suitcase upstairs, before I left, he was wearing a camouflage bandana on his head. And uh, just the day before I was leaving, he took it off and he was playing with it. And then after a few hours, he folded it up and he gave it to me. And he goes, you keep this. And he goes, if I'm not here when you come back, because the plan was and still may happen that I might be going back to Nebraska to work for the tribe to get their tourism development going. But he said, if I'm not here... You just bring this out and uh, tie it to your belt loop. He goes, let them smell the scent. He goes, no, understand. You got nothing to worry about. And to me, it's some of the things that he didn't said. You know, it's it's one thing when you come across a, a bullshit artist. You know, you can right away smell it and see it, and you can just see with the way they're talking that they're just giving you a line of bullshit. I never picked that up once with this guy, and. Uh, the things he said, me being living out in bush myself for many decades, what he said was, you can't make that kind of stuff up. You know, the the stuff about, you know, smelling and listening and reactions to them. You know, he'd, he'd always, like one time he was telling me, he goes, he goes, if you hear the teeth clacking, clack, 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 he goes, don't worry about it. But if you hear trees clacking and then you hear like air coming out, he goes, get out of there. Be very careful, but get out of there. You know, being a bear hunting guide for over 20 years, you know, it's one of the things I always remembered and learned is when a bear snorts at you, that's no big deal. But if he clacks his teeth at you, that's when you better make sure that safety's off and you're ready to start squeezing that trigger because that son of a gun is going to be coming at you. And little things like that, even though it's, the, you know, the barrel teeth clack and he's coming after you, whereas what he told me with the sitonga, they teeth clack, they don't come after you. But if they teeth clack and push air out, that's when they're coming. So it's those kind of things that I picked up that really intrigued me about this gentleman. And uh, like I say, we're working together, you know, recording everything I can with them and and uh hopefully I can find someone who's a better typer than I am so we can get it all to text and hopefully publish a book with pictures and do a little bit more interacting with them. We're waiting for a leaf drop right now and then uh I'll hopefully be back out there in Nebraska there. But it's quite the place and I met quite the person when it comes to these creatures. I think we're gonna learn lots from this guy. Well when we were talking about it at at beach, but you referred to him as Tarzan. I mean, uh, that he has basically lived out in the the woods of this area for, you know, his entire growing up, basically, from the t- like, from just being a kid. Uh, I mean, I just can't imagine. One of the things, what is unique about the the layout of the land there that you think that there's more of a concentration of foot Sasquatch in this area than some other areas? Well, if you look at Google Earth, like I did before I went there, and I didn't realize until I came back, and then after seeing it and being on the ground, you know, boots in the mud, and I came back and I pulled up Macy, Nebraska, the Omaha Indian Reserve on uh, Google Earth, and I expanded out, I just looked and I went, oh, my God. And I 
called my wife and I said, look at this, Peggy. I said, within the Indian Reserve, being out there, and when you and I were there, even remember we were driving through and we mentioned, boy, this sure looks like a Sasquatch area. <laughs> look at all the trees and the fields that are just freshly planted and the, what do you call it, uh, little creeks, creeks or whatever they call them. And uh, all of a sudden, within half an hour, Barry Webster's bringing us to all the houses along this road we just mentioned this on, and everyone's got a bloody story about the constant activity of these creatures. But when I came back and I blew up Google Earth, I looked at it, I went, son of a gun, all around. Like, you got to remember that this Omaha Indian Reserve is on the west side of the Missouri River. On the eastern side is um, Iowa, and it's just flat as a pancake, and it's nothing but farms and fields. There's hardly any pockets of trees. And west of the Indian Reserve, the same thing. When I was flying on the airplanes to and from, I was looking out the windows, and I was just going, no bloody wonder there's so many on Omaha Indian Reserve. Now, we go back to the 1800s when in Canada and the United States, we Indians were forced into these Indian reservations that were basically surveyed and plotted out by the governments. You got to remember, they put us in inferior zones for cattle ranching, inferior farm areas for wheat and barley and everything else. So they put us in these areas that, you know, weren't good for ranching or farming. And so we never did that. And Omaha, they just got into farming at a tribe level in 2009. And like I was telling them in the chief and council when I was in their chambers, I said, I highly recommend that you put a tribal council resolution in place as soon as possible, that there is no more clearing of timber, period, within the Indian Reserve, because you guys are an enclave. Along the west shore of Missouri River is this pocket of hardwood forest. And to me, it reminded me of the flood stories that my tribe has in Vancouver Island North, where we know that this great flood came and covered the entire world and cleansed all of the world of all the evil, rotten, lying, stealing, lazy, mean, warring people. And only the good people were given the messengers by creator on how to figure out a way to survive this great flood that came to cleanse the land. Well, some of the stories you hear from the different families you talk about, you know, living on the, these little islets, which were the tips of mountains that we can look to to this day and say, you know, that's uh, where the Wiwakai and Wiwakum people, they come from this great chief who survived by staying on the lee side of the top of the mountain during the great flood when it was this little islet. And then there's stories when you're in Courtney Comox, Cumberland area of Vancouver Island and you look up to the mountain and there's a big glacier called Forbidden Plateau but to the native people all around that region they refer to it as Quinish, the great white whale that saved their ancestors during this great flood so there's all these stories about the great flood and you can imagine when you know last night even I was watching something on YouTube where there's a flood and there's this guy going around in his speedboat rescuing armadillos and possums you know they're hanging on to everything they could and there he couldn't believe how many armadillos and opossums he was finding so a flood's a flood and right now with the omaha indian reserve it's almost like that flood all the forests are gone all of their natural habitat is gone and as i've said before with the hypotheses i've come up with about smallpox and sasquatch how I firmly believe in my lifetime of 52 years, there's been an explosion of native peoples throughout the entire North America and all the Americas for that matter. Even the Aborigines I hear are exploding in population. But you gotta remember through the 1700s into the early 1900s, we were subjected to, like everyone else in the world, you know, smallpox, influenza, tuberculosis, you know, even the 1918, uh, Spanish flu decimated our numbers. So the native people, our populations collapse in some areas 100%. Most areas, anywhere from 80 to high 90%. Our people were decimated from these diseases from the 1600s through into the early 1900s. But all of a sudden in the 1900s, my tribe had less than 1,200 people. 
Now we're over 12,000. And it's in my lifetime of 52 years that I've seen this huge explosion in population of indigenous people. But when I took all of the reports and I correlated it, watches and sighting reports, we're seeing the last thing since, you know, what you did in your commercials there, Bob Gimlin, good friend of mine now, but, you know, look what him and Roger Patterson did. They documented a female Sasquatch at Juno in 1967. And since 1967, especially in the last 10 years, look at the amount of reports that are coming in. We're pretty much up to a monthly basis right now on social media with blob squatches and blur squatches coming out. But it's just a matter of time before we get another Roger Patterson, Bob Gimlin level, or if not higher, video of these creatures. And then all of a sudden, everyone's going to go, oh, holy, I guess they are true. I guess they do exist. Oh, there must possibly be an explosion in populations that correlates to the human explosion of the indigenous people of Turtle Island, North America, which I call Sasquatch Island. And that's exactly what I'm seeing in Omaha. There's been... By the sounds of it, from the area I studied, I, I thought at first, there must be about three, maybe two or three clans talking to this man, this friend of mine now. He said, oh, no, there's more than that. He goes, you got your, he says, there's lots of them. He says, you got your harvesters, you got your hunters, you got your scouts, and you have your rogues. Oh, I hate the rogues. And I said, what are the rogues? He says, oh, they're the big males, the big mean ones. I said, what's up with a rogue? I said, it's sort of like a rogue wolf. You know, they used to be the head wolf of a pack, and then they get ousted. They have a choice. They can stay at the fringe of the pack and eat the scraps, never being allowed back into the pack proper again because they got toppled. Or they just take off and go on their own. He goes, yeah, that's what they've done. They've took off and gone on their own. They're rogues. And then with the feeding reports, I firmly believe from the track evidence and actually those track ways, it looked like human paths along a river. Some of the areas we looked at where as soon as it gets dark, the rogues go into wherever the houses are that people are feeding them. So the humans have habituated the Sitonga in Omaha Indian Reserve. And it's not just that Indian Reserve. It's to numerous other Indian Reserves that I'm in communications with. I'm finding the same thing that same pattern is being established across the board that the people feed them. Number one, spiritual, they're in high regard and reverence. And number one reason why they feed them, they're afraid of them. You know, they're intimidating. All of a sudden in Omaha, with all the feeding taking place, the humans have habituated Sitonga. So they want to be fed. They expect to be fed. And now, Sitonga is habituating the humans. And in my report, just two weeks, my, you know, research, I mean, talking to people that, you know, telling me about how a SUV window was smashed out that they had parked in their carport. Oh, they came in a few weeks prior and there was a big one eating some food that was left in the carport by the grandkids. And they had to honk their horn, flash the lights, thing wouldn't leave, just growled at her. So she put the thing in gear and kicked it ahead even closer, honking her horn, flashing her lights, and the thing finally took off. So what I found was when you hear the stories about the houses, guy says, oh, this house was getting old and, you know, moldy. So we brought in this double-wide trailer, put it up. Within a week of putting it up, all of a sudden something banged the side of the house when I was at work at night. And my wife said the pictures even moved. And then that story is pretty much repeats itself with other people that aren't feeding them. So it's almost like Sitonga is habituating the human, meaning we're going to throw sticks, we're going to vocalize, we're going to bang your house, we're going to make a ruckus until you finally start feeding us like everyone else is on the on the reservation. One of the sites I went to, this uh, house that the individual was at the um, old age home, a lot of activity had taken place there, and uh, I was brought there to look at a teepee structure type shape. And I think I've said before, I'm not much into structures because um, I've sort of beyond tracks, hairs, uh, tree structures, things like that. It doesn't interest me. I'm after crispy, clear video and picture. I, you know, I care less about another track. And uh, 
especially after we found a track in Nebraska and we took pictures of it and cast it. I put it on the internet and I just shook my head in disgust and rolled my eyes at how many skeptic, negative, nilly, whining bitches came forward. And as far as I'm concerned, that'll be the last time I put a track up again. You know, it's just like, why bother? You know, I'm after the picture, after the image, but I'm also trying to help people by sharing the data on Sasquatch Island, my Facebook group, and, you know, going to conferences and that so other people can look at some of the things I'm finding because I you know, researching is you got to try new things. And a lot of it is like, you know, Bob Gimlin, you know, he was a Bushman, a cowboy. And Roger Patterson, from what I understand, what little I know about him, what I've read in that, he was pretty much the same. And all of a sudden, these two bushers go out and lo and behold, they get video of it. Well, that same pattern should be repeating itself. We see all of these you know, people going out chasing the Sasquatch and God forbid they go watch that TV show with uh, people taking wood and banging trees. You know, it's the last thing you want to do is tree bang. You know, all you're going to get as far as evidence is maybe a rec- audio recording of a answer because my people have been taught that when you hear wood against wood, it's a telling you, stop, turn around, go back where you came from, human. Me and my family are up here right now. I don't want you in here. So out of respect, you heed that warning from those creatures, whether it be wood against wood, shaking trees, throwing things at you, you get the hell out of there. Well, the TV show that, you know, was on for so many years, you know, every time you watch it, it bang, 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 bang. You might as well stand up with a loud hailer and say, hey, Sasquatches, turn around and leave. I don't want you anywhere near me. So that's what I mean. We got to start doing research differently. We got to look at the pros and cons of what we've done to date. Well, what we've done to date, we haven't really come up spades yet, have we? Freeman did. You know, he's going out by himself, doing his thing from what I understand, and he gets some video. Other people, they get some video when they're out doing their stuff. But the ones that are going out there and tree banging and, you know, dressed in camel, and that's, I used to always wear camel when I went out, and I'm really thinking twice about it now because I was told by someone in, in Nebraska if you want to see them, don't wear camel. And it makes sense because I know that as long as you have a gun in your arm or even the smell of the shells or bullets in your pocket, you're never going to come across the Sasquatch in my territories. Uh, you wear camel and have a gun on your shoulder, you're never going to see them. You go out in the bush mushroom picking and all you got is a knife and uh, you're wearing camel, well, never had any incidents. Go out wearing a Mustang floater coat that was black one time, mushroom picking. We heard something, smelled something. So I'm looking at all of the data from my experience, and I'm saying, you know, these things aren't stupid. And camel, guns, I think if I want to see these things and video them, I got to quit wearing camo. Sure, I look cool. I remember when I was a hunting guide for grizzly bears or somebody coming to National back in 25 years ago. You know, I was going to Campbell River, I'd go into the bar or restaurant, I'd be wearing camel, and people would look at me and, you know, smirk at me and ask me, what are you doing wearing camouflage gear? Are you in the Army? I'm like, no, I'm a hunting guide. That's what I wear. And, uh, you know, to me, I was wearing camel back before, you know, I remember Realtree when it first came out. It's Farrakhan International. We're getting free Realtree shirts and pants and hats because they wanted us hunting guides to start wearing them while we're doing our hunting videos so everyone else would buy their real tree camel clothes. Well, look at it now, you know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry, camel clothing. And I fell for it. I'm like, oh, I got to be a fashionista. I got to wear a camel. Got to say Cabela's. Got to say real tree. And now I'm thinking about it. And I'm going, you know, son of a bitch. Every time I've been wearing camel, my chance of encounters or hearing or smelling something has really decreased. And what I heard in Omaha is if you want to see the things or hear the things, don't wear camel. So it's something I picked up and something I'm going to be looking at starting to do. So it's research has always got to change. And one of the best ways is what I did in November when I sat there and I was looking at all the different Sasquatch groups and looking at all the YouTube clips and all the different things that were out there. And I was just shaking my head going, ah, oh, for God's sakes, the Indianuity, they're going to start listening to the Indians. 
And I thought, well, I can be a whiny Indian about it and bitch away, or I can be a positive native entrepreneur and get out there and share. So I went to Sasquatch Island, my friend's group, and that's when I seen that flashing thing that said, this group needs an administrator. So I clicked the button in November of 2016, and the rest is history. Sasquatch Island now is, you know, getting more and more members daily. Uh, we've got our own television show on production, um, interacting on 20 other different groups. Um, most of them, you know, I've asked the administrators and messages, you know, if you don't want me posting on here, I'll be glad. I'll, you know, I'll leave, you know. And they're like, no, 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 don't you leave. You keep posting, Tom. We like what you're posting. So that's the kind of stuff we need more of. We need more people to go into the Indian reservations. You know, those little chunks of property that the governments went and put up with their surveyors and said, we're going to throw all the Indians there and we don't want to see them unless we want to see them. We don't want to hear them unless we want to hear them speak. Well, generations went by and no one came to see us. No one spoke to us. And now in the last few years, we're seeing people like Rez Squatching, the Webster brothers, Nancy, uh, down in uh, New Mexico, I think it is, myself and other Indians starting to come out of the reservations and with the modern day smoke signal, we're on Facebook and we're getting out there in groups. We have our own groups. We have our own expedition companies. We have our own websites and we're saying, hey, if you want a chance to see these things, you might want to come with us. You might want to listen to us. And now you got to remember to Christopher Columbus, Lewis and Clark, uh, Alexander Mackenzie, and the list goes on of all these explorers that came to the New World. What was the one thing they did to ensure their safety, to know where they're going, so they don't get lost and so they don't starve to death? They hired an Indian guy, tried and proven formula. Why are more people not doing it with Sasquatch Bigfoot? And we're saying the doors of our teepees, our longhouses, our modern homes, our pickup trucks, even our quads, they're open for you to come with us and we'll help you hopefully get conclusive proof of the existence of these creatures so that then maybe some people will take seriously like chiefs and councils and state and provincial governments and federal governments to say, holy Christ, we actually have another tribe of humans out there. We need to start putting protective measures in place right now so that they don't become extinct. And that's what my mission is in life right now. It's to find conclusive proof and help others get that conclusive proof. And, yeah, it's a race. It's all about ego and being able to be the one to stick the flag in the ground and say, hey, I'm the second one to get conclusive proof of the Sasquatch Bigfoot. We know that Bob Gimlin and Roger Patterson did. Well, here's me. I'm number two. And that's what we need to have happen. Well, Thomas, what what do you think has to happen? I mean, what's going to be do it to to prove these things exist or these people? I mean, we don't know. Are they people? Are they you know? Are they a lost tribe? Are they are they uh, the North American uh, gorilla? What are I mean? What so you have a you have some um, insights and and ideas about what they are, but what do you think it's going to take? to prove their existence? Interacting with them, getting them to take a ball of putty, get them to squeeze it so you can get those ridges on their hands so you can throw it in a Ziploc bag and bring it in. Get those cell phones. That's all you need is cell phones with video and stills. Get some video up close with them, their eyes blinking. If you, and this is where, you know, it, you know, all these people that are supposedly habituating and interacting and gifting with these creatures. Well, until you come out with some crispy, clear pictures, you're a bunch of bullshitters. That's my opinion of you. Back it up. You're talking the talk, walk the walk. Come forward and show us your videos and say, yeah, I've been gifting them peanut butter and apples and marshmallows, and this is what we're doing. And yeah, I listened to Tom on, on uh Gunner's show and, I listened to them. I went back out and I actually got them to open their mouth and I videotaped them. That's what you need is that conclusive proof and video and stills like that. Now, because, um, you know, like you said with Tarzan, you know, I'm not going to take credit for finding Tarzan. Well, I did find them, but I'm not going to take credit for labeling them. 
that was Todd Meese, our good friend, of course, with the American Primate Conservancy. When I was phoned him, when I got back, and I was telling him what about this guy I met and what I think that he's did throughout his lifetime. And Todd goes, holy Christ, you found Tarzan. Well, yeah, it's like that. So if you are going to be with them, get coverage of them. You know, Tarzan existed, yes, in Hollywood, but they didn't go shoot Tarzan, did they? Did they? they went and interacted with them. And because I belong to that American Primate Conservancy and because of my Kwakwakiwak beliefs that we do never, ever try to harm them or hurt them or disrespect them, and I uphold no kill. Then again, I'm a hunter, and if I'm out there with my family or myself in the bush and something comes within 20 feet of me and it's showing aggressive posturing and stance, and once it cracks that 20-yard perimeter around me, it's it's no longer a bluff charge. It's going to start getting some lead put into it quite a bit until that thing goes down. I've done it with grizzlies. I've done it with black bears and cougars and wolves. I'll do it again with anything, human included, if they come within 20 feet of me and they're trying to harm me. Bush rules are bush rules, and I'm not saying that's going to happen. I hope it never happens, but I am trying everything I can to get crispy, clear images up close. And when I was in Omaha, Nebraska there, we had that little uh, blur device that hooks up to your Android phone. Well, when I was packing the leaf, Peggy goes, oh, take the fleur. And I said, I thought you said it didn't work. She goes, well, I tri- when I f- paid 250 bucks for it, I was sitting outside and I tried it out. It only works for maybe 20 or 30 feet. So when I got to Nebraska, I just left it in my bag. I thought, you know, I'm not going to hook something up that only works 20 or 30 feet. But when I was with this uh, man down at the cabins and, you know, we're six miles out of town, no one else is down there but us and the buffalo and the Setongas. I said, hey, I got that Fleur, let's try it out. So I charged it up, put it on my Android. Peggy had downloaded me all the software and apps for it, and I fired it up. And uh, lo and behold, we got 150 yards plus really crispy, clear images with the Fleur. So we were trying all the buttons and settings and video and still pictures, and we jumped in the pickup truck, and off we went. And we're 10 minutes, not even 10 minutes up the road, and we came across a boomer. 30 feet inside the bush from us and uh we got it you know it's a blob squatch that one but we got a pretty good one standing in the middle of a field about 100 120 yards from us and we tried everything to get that thing to move but my indian guide he just laughed because you can do anything you want you can't make them move you got to walk towards them and i said what happens if we walk towards them i'll just hold his ground i get about 30 yards little closer then he'll just turn and take off i said well let's go out there and do that and he goes nope so the rattlesnakes <laughs> out there in that field I said, oh, that's all he had to say because i hate snakes there's no bloody way i was walking to that field but we sat there for a good half an hour trying to get this thing to move and it just stood there like a pillar and we got video of it and stills of it different settings of it and then a couple maybe half an hour later we came back looked back in the field wasn't there and disappeared next day we went and looked of course no tracks too hard but you know it's the whole time i was there we we got nine recordings one of them i'll say for sure two of them i'll say for sure definitely they're pretty good and one of them i posted on sasquatch island the other one i'm saving for the tv show and then we got seven or eight you know probables you know blob squatches and like i say it's i'm not gonna when in doubt, throw it out. So to me, I'm not going to delete them, but I'm not going to use them either or share them because they're kind of blurry. That's what we need. We need conclusive proof by interacting with them. And uh, so that's kind of, yeah, that's kind of the, what I put out there is basically there's three ways to prove them. I mean, we, we got to have a specimen live or a dead specimen or, or a long-term interaction. Like you're talking about that's documented, not, not anecdotal. Somebody saying, "Yeah, I, you know, Bigfoot lives in my backyard, and and I feed him, and we, you know, he brings me, leaves me stuff." And I, it's it's got to it's got to be documented, and that means multiple clear video, with like you're talking about with DNA um, samples being being gotten, multiple DNA samples, multiple video. And basically, I say like the Jane Goodall kind of experience with 
with Sasquatch. Yeah. Well, it's going to be tough getting DNA unless you can swab their mouth, I guess, and definitely got to videotape that. Hopefully that day will come. You know, I don't want to see one shot or killed, but, you know, it's probably, that's probably more than likely what's going to happen, you know. Like, you know, it's, you know, it's to me as a Canadian coming down to the States, you know, I've been down here for a few months and, you know, going out to Nebraska and what is it, Idaho and, uh, Washington State, Oregon. I'm just amazed at how much fire firearms are down here compared to Canada. So yeah, and probably you know someone will get one. You hear the chatter about people getting one already, and then the government coming in and it disappears. You know, it's it's the conspiracy theory side, whatever. You know, to me it's like track, and uh, it's you know the main thing though that I'm seeing you know daily and. That's why I'm such a, I guess you can say, you know, one person I think labeled it pretty good. He called me a belligerent asshole on Sasquatch Island. And I said, thanks a lot for the compliment. <laughs> because I don't take crap. I'm a bushman. I'm a commercial fisherman. You know, when you're up in a commercial fishing port on the weekend off the boat having a few beers, you get in someone's face, you're going to end up with fat lips or a black eye. That's just the code. And same with the bush. And then, you know, me being on the internet, you know, I see all these whining, crying skeptics coming on there, and I rip them a new one. And then I get these other ones that are belligerent b-holes, and, you know, I rip them a new one as well. And what it's done since November is it's cleaned up when I post. People don't attack me. You know, there's one guy attacked this group, actually. We got a group of people that were been coming after quite a few North American Indians in the last few years. And one of my guys, you know, he's been doing some, you know, investigating on them and he knows their circle. So he gave me their names and everything. And sure enough, I started getting attacked about a month, five weeks ago. Profiles pulled their pictures up, posted them up and, you know, said, look, I even Googled your name and lo and behold, this is where you live in this state, this street. And I'm like, what are you up to? What are you What are you attacking me for? And all of a sudden, they just went off radar. You know, and that's good evidence of what we need to have happen. Number one, shut the skeptic up. Those little whiners, shut them up. It's like a school ground. You don't put up with whiny, sniveling little brats. You shut them up. And that's what we need to do. But the main thing we need to do to get conclusive proof is we got to quit the infighting. we got to quit the belittling someone who comes up with a picture of a track or something let it be sure scrutinize it you know put it through the hoops and hurdles so that you know it's not a bs one and make sure but some of the stuff i'm seeing on there and it's usually the same people you know that whine and cry and snivel and basically belittling people so some people now won't even post any evidence they have because they're afraid of being belittled and attacked attacked is bottom line what happened to me and i just showed them that hey i can piss up higher in a fence pole than you can pal and that's what we need to do we need to start being more cooperating with one another supporting one another as well like right now when i I just sit back now and i post something that doesn't happen too often now because a lot of people have learned and you know and they've read and they've watched and god forbid i ain't gonna attack tom because as soon as i attack tom on sasquatch island or on Bigfoot community or BFRO or um, other groups I'm on, all of a sudden the ladies step up and they rip them a new one. And I just love seeing that half a dozen ladies just tearing into some idiot who made some stupid comment. <laughs> but that's what we need. We need to start looking after each other. Right. And now, and I, I've been saying this for a while too, is it's about cooperation, you know, uh, instead of competition, collaboration As, if we, if you have something and I have something, you know, I want to see in in uh, our film forest research group, we we moved ahead really quickly when we started collaborating with groups like the Olympic Project, with some other friends that that uh, we found that were were getting similar, uh, having similar things happen. We have some audio stuff that was when we shared it with other people. Um, they say, yeah, we have the, the same thing up here in Washington or, or Idaho or, or, you know, so it research that's going on does not show up, you know, in social media. Um, 
it's just not going to. It's not worth, like you say, the 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 downside of of being attacked by people who have nothing better to do than than sit in it. And you know, it's very easy. They're armchair warrior, you know, keyboard warrior, and uh, it good for you that you're sticking in there and and defending yourself when you, those people come after you. Um, I know that. Uh, I know that you enjoy it to some degree, the banter. So, um, <laughs> yeah, they they don't have a chance when when they're they're uh, battling with with someone who has stuff to back it up. So, good for you. Well, one guy, one guy who got a little bit, you could tell it was like one o'clock in the morning. There, he was spouting off there last. So I just hit the phone icon, and all of a sudden he's hello. And I'm like, hey, it's Tom. I got tired of texting you. I said, hey, how about this? I said, uh, you put your money where your mouth is. You come sit down at the International Bigfoot Conference with Todd Neese, Derek Randless, myself, and probably a couple other of the good old boys. And you come say exactly what you texted me tonight. If you're man enough to come sit with us boys at our table and say what you said to me in text tonight, I'll pat you on the back and I'll buy the rest of your beers for the rest of the night. And that was it. You know, he won't come. He won't show up because that's what they are. They're chihuahua dogs. Yep, 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 yep. As soon as you growl at them or kick them, you know, they leave and they don't come back again. And that's what the whole community needs to do. I know a lot of people take that lefty liberal, ooh, I can't say this and offend that person. Bullshit. You know, you got to. Right. You know, we're bush, bush people. You know, the bush women and bush men when it comes to Sasquatch Bigfoot research Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing it. You don't go out in that bush if you're not crispy and know what you're doing. So we have to have that mentality of a bush person. We have to rip them a new one and smack them upside the head verbally if we have to. And once we do that, we shut them up. We get them out of the herd because, God forbid, chihuahuas ain't going to spend a day with a wolf pack, are they? That's the way I look at it. Absolutely true. Well, Tom, we're, we're just about out of time. I appreciate you. I want to thank you for joining us again on Monster X Radio. Uh, of course, we are are uh, working on, on doing some stuff together, uh, and I won't announce it right now, but we're, we're working to uh, – Monster X is working with Tom. So uh, we appreciate the, the work that you're doing out there and look forward to hearing more about uh, what's going on with with uh, Nebraska, the Omaha tribe, and uh, and anything else that you're you're uh, coming across, because you have this, you know, connection with with the First Nations people that that uh, is is pretty cool and bring, brings a different uh, perspective to the subject. And uh, thank you again for for joining us today on Monster X Radio. Oh, no problem. Yeah, we'll keep. Get on Sasquatch Island and I'll post on your site too. Right now it's Washington State and next month it'll be British Columbia, but some big things are happening in Washington State. I can't say yet until I get protocols and permission in place with the chief and councils of those tribes, but once I do, everyone's going to be amazed and uh, we'll keep you posted. But thank you very much for having me on and you have a good evening and I'll talk to you again real soon. All right, Tom. Thanks. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to Monster X Radio. This is Gunnar Monson. We'll be back next Sunday with a brand-new episode. Um, Shane and I will actually be at the Oregon Bigfoot Festival, the first one ever, along with uh, Cliff Berrickman. And this Saturday in Tualatin, you can look it up, Oregon Bigfoot Festival. Uh, and uh, we hope to see you there. And I'll be bringing lots of Sasquatch coffee if you want to pick some up. Um, and I may even have some of the new... Bob Gimlin uh, special edition. So, again, thanks thanks for listening to Monster X Radio. Until uh, we talk again, have a great week.
thank you for joining Monster X Radio 